Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of fatal car crashes. Some listeners may find this content disturbing. If this does affect you, dial Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, the forensics behind fatal crash investigations. I've been to sites where there have been crashes a couple of years later and I still find the evidence there at the site. Professor Raphael Jabieta has carried out over 200 in-depth crash investigations and accident reconstruction analyses. His work is intricate and highly detailed and, as you'll hear, involves traumatic, highly confronting crime scenes that act as a puzzle for forensics. One of the cases that stands out for Raf was one he worked on only a few years ago. The Dubbo truck crash that occurred prior to 2020, that was quite a horrific crash. Um, it involved two prime movers towing uh, triaxial trailer transports with fabricated concrete panels. They were in convoy. Um, the one that was following the lead, he had approached a line of traffic that was stopped at a roadworks and the uh, speed limit was supposed to be 40 kilometres per hour, but he actually stopped the traffic and there was a line of vehicles, um, six vehicles, including just cars as well as a B-double 60-tonne grain truck. And he struck, the lead vehicle in that convoy struck the line of vehicles I estimated at 87 kilometres per hour and even the driver admitted he was doing around about 80 kilometres per hour and collided with those seven vehicles. Virtually instantly killed two people that were in the second car in the line and injured all the other people in those line of vehicles and it was like a you know it was like a major disaster. It was like as if you had a plane crash or an explosion with multiple individuals involved and um, uh, an object. I mean, when you look at the scene, the map scene or the aerial shot that was taken that the um, police took from a helicopter, it is just uh, amazing that you can untangle what actually happened. You know, I'm most impressed with the police, the way they untangled that whole situation. The prime mover, it acted like a massive bulldozer going at huge speed, pushing vehicles out of the way until it hit the grain truck, which was the fifth vehicle in the line. And so the first vehicle, it was stunning. This 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 person that was trapped in the um, uh, first vehicle that was uh, struck, he was rolled into a ball underneath the truck. The truck was sort of up and up on top of it, like as if you put something on top of a football or a, a round ball. And he was wrapped up inside that, still alive, 
and the prime mover with that rolled up vehicle kept on pushing until it hit the 66 tonne truck and so the first thing was to get that person out and so that's the first thing the police do is um, assess who's injured, who needs assistance and immediately start pulling them all out. The emergency services, of course, you have your um, state emergency services, the volunteers, they, they get there as well. And so um, a whole lot of people, but you've got to have someone who's commanding that. And so that's what they tend to do is they set up someone who's responsible for the whole site and start to rescue these people. So that's the first thing. Then the next sequence is, of course, is working out what happened. And so you'll, if it's a major crash like this, then you'll get the forensic team from the police, from the crash investigation squad, attending and coming in, usually driving. But if it's pretty remote, they may come in by chopper. If there's more than one fatality, and this happens in Victoria, if you get about three or four fatalities, then quite often they'll fly the coroner in by chopper to have a look. Because it's really important people see what's happened if the whole process winds up going to court or an inquest is carried out. It ramps up at different levels as the number of victims increase. Obviously, we think of the word accident but when investigators go no, in... No, I don't like using that no, word. No, I don't, I don't particularly like it either. Um, I call them crashes and incidents. Yes. Crashes and incidents. That's what we've got to call them. We've got to stop using this word accident. It's not a, a thing that's uncontrollable. Everything's controllable, and that's what we've been saying as experts, as um, road safety experts over decades. Call them crashes, incident. Don't call them an accident. At this truck crash, hmm. there's carnage... You obviously have emergency services rushing in. You're concerned that some vital evidence may be destroyed. How can the evidence be destroyed or damaged or interfered with by emergency services? It's not as hard to destroy the evidence as you think, but in some instances I was involved in one particular case, which was a head-on crash. What happens is in such crashes is vehicles dip into the road and cause gouge marks in the road. The tyres um, uh, get blocked. In, in this instance, the prime mover truck had its hoses uh, severed, brake hoses, and what happens is the brakes, it's, it's, it's um, automatically brakes, all wheels, and so you then get skid marks. So you can't get rid of those. Uh, they're embedded, you know, they're sort of in the road system. And then you get shattering of glasses, you get water dropping, etc. In this particular crash that I looked at, the head-on crash, there was this water patch, which was um, alluded to as, oh, this is the point of impact. This is possibly where the point of impact, but it wasn't. And what happened was, what we established was that one of the emergency vehicles, which had air conditioning, had dropped some water in that area. And so that contaminated the site. But you're absolutely right. We have to be careful about contamination. And the police are pretty tuned into that. I mean, the forensic investigative group and most of the police that are trained to investigate crash sites are aware of, you know, if a car's been cut open to, to help a person get a person out of a vehicle. So you know what's the difference between a vehicle that's been crushed because of the kinetic energy, the impact forces, and one that's been cut away with the jaws of life to try and release someone from the vehicle. Obviously, the priority is to save lives first. 
But then you have a death scene, so you have coroners. How on earth do you start going about trying to work out what happened? To me, it's like having seen the aerial photos, it's like a whole lot of Lego has been scattered everywhere. How do you go from that chaos to finding order? Okay, so objects behave according to the laws of physics. We are all governed. It's actually one single equation. The velocity squared equals two times the acceleration times the distance over which that acceleration acts. V equals 2AS. Believe it or not, it's equivalent to Einstein's equation of E equals MC squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. But on Earth here, we're not affected by relativity. And so that single equation governs what happens to vehicles and people and the systems that collide. Now, usually the forensic engineers the, and the police, the, the forensic investigators, the, um, those that go to the scene, have an idea of what happens when vehicles collide. From experience, from training, we know from past crashes what happens. In this particular case with the Dubbo crash, the prime mover had immense energy. I mean, it's 87 kilometres per hour. And um, that kinetic energy of that truck uh, with a 40-odd tonne carrying those concrete prefab structures, it acts like a massive bulldozer just pushing things out of the way. I mean, it's almost like you see in the movies to some extent, Terminator, for example, where they had that big truck and it's just pushing things out of the way. Well, that's exactly what happened in this case. The police, when they when they go there with the forensic investigators, they have some inkling of an idea of what was the point of impact. The point of impact, usually you can find the point of impact is where there's a gouge mark, where what happens is vehicles tend to dive. When they've got a force imparted onto the front of them, they tend to dip. And when they dip, the undercarriage of the vehicle rubs against the road and sort of gouges like a plow and creates these marks. There's also the wheels. Uh, if there's braking, if there's prior braking, then you'll see the skid marks on the road. If there's glass that's been shattered, you'll see it, you know, the glass will not flick forwards. It'll always flick ahead of the vehicle if you can think of that. So, you know, like hitting a billiard ball, for example, if you're, you've got the cue ball, it hits the billiard ball. The, the ball that gets hit doesn't go backwards. It goes forwards. And you know that. And the same with glass and with all of these um, components, you know that goes forward. Spray, for example, if it's a fuel tank, it goes forward. It doesn't go backwards. The vehicles that got pushed to one side, you can work out more or less where these vehicles are as to the sequence of the impact and what gets struck. And so we know that the grain truck, which was a 60-tonner, that was the B-double truck, um, vehicle six, um, in other words, the fifth vehicle in the queue, uh, it didn't move. All it did was just skid. And also its kingpin got sheared. That's the amount of force that was in that. And also the driver's cabin got crushed a little bit. Um, the driver got, uh, had some minor injuries but um, uh, walked away. And so you can work out that sequence. And so that's what the police do. But 
One of the important things to do is to do walkthroughs, to have photographs. You can't take enough photographs. Photographs are a key because you go back to them and they've got to be high-resolution photographs because you, you could be analysing this case like I was a couple of years after the incident. And so you rely on those photographs, those high-resolution photographs to help you reconstruct the crash. Do you reconstruct it in three dimensions as best you can using computer programs or how do you reconstruct it? No, it's, it's, well, you can do that. You can use computer simulations to reconstruct it. And you see that sometimes in the, you know, we see these documentaries about plane crashes and car crashes, et cetera, and you see the reconstructed. Uh, for example, the Princess Diana crash. Um, those reconstructions, whilst they're useful, they give you information, you can't rely on them. Um, and, um, for example, George Hample, who was a judge, I remember going to a symposium where we simulated a court proceedings and I had a simulation of a vehicle crash and I was trying to present it um, and um, uh, Judge Hample's wife, Felicity, who's a judge also, Felicity Hample was cross-examining me and I tried to put this into evidence and he said well how do we know that's not a cartoon how do you know that's not fiction um, where's your evidence and so the issue here is it always comes back to what you found at the site and also what you found how the person was injured so I often look at autopsy reports at paramedic reports you've got to pull everything in you've also got to try and pull in the evidence prior leading to that crash so in that particular crash, um, there was an issue that, um, well, the driver claimed that he had a coughing fit and that he lost consciousness prior to the crash, and that's why the crash happened. And so um, there was a, um, you get the information about, okay, well, how is he travelling all those days, all those hours, rather, prior to the crash? And the dash cam came in very useful because um, of, the, uh, of the truck that was following that lead truck. We were able to use that dash cam to figure out, OK, how long had they had a sleep? Had they been to um, gone out the night before and maybe had some drinks or whatever? And was he really fatigued? So there's a, a whole stream of evidence that comes in and you've got to look at the total picture in cases that my colleague has um, been involved in in these major truck crashes, he's looked at the companies, the companies themselves. And we know chain of responsibility is now a legal requirement. So the director of a company can be held responsible if they know their truck driver is driving too, too, for, men, for long hours and shouldn't be and should be taking rests and breaks. So, yeah, everything comes in. In terms of... The driver in this case, if he said he was fatigued, for example, and fell asleep, is that a defence? There was a case, and it is a defence. The way it works is that, you know, if you're asleep at the wheel, that you might not be held responsible for the incident itself. There was a case, uh, Yemenis versus the Queen, uh, and what it was was at about 11pm on the 13th of June 1988, this particular driver he set out to travel south in his BMW with three other people in the car and um, before setting out he slept for about four hours from about five o'clock in the afternoon 
one of the other female passengers in the car, Mace, uh, Janelle Stefanoni, um, drove the car for about 400 kilometres. And then after that time, the particular uh, driver had slept. And at about 3.30 a.m., they switched and Yemenis uh, uh, started driving the car. And about six o'clock on the Pacific Highway, 30 kilometres north of Kemsey, the car failed to make a moderate right-hand turn in the, in the highway. And it went into the shoulder and hit a tree and uh, Stefanoni was killed. And so he then got convicted. He was found guilty by a jury at trial and he was convicted of culpable driving and sentenced to six months imprisonment to be served by way of periodic detention. However, um, there was the question as to whether the driver who falls asleep at the wheel is guilty of driving in a manner dangerous to the public. And so... um, he appealed to the High Court of Australia and what happened was when the driver was asleep, because during that time his actions were not conscious or voluntary, he was acquitted. And defence barristers have used that particular precedent in New South Wales. And so what you have to now do, the onus is on the police to establish that the fatigue of the driver was a hazard to the public and a hazard to the passengers or anyone else. And that's quite hard. So in this particular case, what happened was initially when when the paramedics attended the scene, they asked the driver, what happened? And he said, oh, my brakes failed. I accelerator jammed. Okay, so that was when they're pulling him out of the, the truck because he was trapped in the truck. Then uh, on the way to the hospital, he said his, his brakes hadn't worked. Okay, but then a day later, he changed his story and he changed it to a situation where he had a coughing fit and he lost consciousness. And so the issue, the onus fell onto the police. Okay, well, we've got to establish that he was conscious prior to the crash. And so when I was reconstructing the crash, I was provided with the dash cam video of the truck following in the convoy. And I could see in that video, I could see the accused's um, truck veer to the left to get out of the way of another truck that was coming in the opposite direction, a very large truck coming in the opposite direction, to veer to the left over the fog line. And then as soon as that truck passed, then veered back. And that happened about five seconds prior to the crash. So he must have been conscious and very aware that... um, he had to avoid hitting the oncoming truck, but at the same time went back into the lane and didn't slow down. And he kept on going at that speed, the 87 kilometres per hour, which was over the limit because he'd had a number of warnings. It was a warning that there was a, a work zone ahead. Um, there was a slowing down from, um, from 100 to 80, then from 80 to 60, and then the work zone was ahead. So he'd missed all those cues. And so he was... Um, found guilty by the jury, that he actually was aware, but he didn't slow down. Do you also look at what distractions there could have been? Was he on a phone? Yes, they do. Phone records are pulled up. Not only that, there is um, a speed monitoring system on the trucks, a tachometer. So all of the data from that is downloaded so that you can see what speeds there were. The problem with the tachometer is that it's not refined enough. It's fairly coarse. 
in terms of timestamp. But, um, but yeah, that information's useful. And the mobile phones, yes, they know where... That, that's one of the first things that are downloaded straight away as evidence as to whether they're on the phone or not making a call. And then automatically drivers are tested for alcohol, drugs, any other substances that could be influencing their behaviour. Yes, he was tested. He had no alcohol, no. But, um, but yes, they're tested for drugs and alcohol. Yes, that's the f- one of the first things as you go into the hospital. They'll test you for that. Chain of evidence is extremely critical in, in these trials. I got involved in a go-kart incident in Victoria a long time ago where a mum of two children, sadly, um, wound up um, dying in a where her go-kart crashed into a concrete barrier. And so the go-kart was kept, hadn't been touched. The police secured it. It then got brought out to our laboratories at Monash and um, they asked us to have a look at it. And so when I had a look at it, I had a colleague of mine. We got dressed up in all of the forensic suits and everything because you've got to be very careful with blood splatter, of course, and you've got to wear gloves and all that and protect yourself. And so she donned all the gear and then I got her to sit in the vehicle, in the go-kart, and then to try and have the seatbelt on her. And what we found was, quite remarkably, the seatbelt hadn't been adjusted properly so as to secure the person that died into the go-kart seat. And what happened was her head, as it came into contact with the steering wheel and the rest of her torso kept on going forward because that's what it'll do, and the seatbelt hadn't restrained her, she fractured the base of her skull. And so that's how she died. And so in that particular instance, chain of evidence was critical because the owners of the go-kart facility were prosecuted by work cover and it went to trial. And so you've got to ensure that all of that evidence is properly looked at. I've got another case where I'm looking at a, at a helmet now. And so that gets delivered to me by the police. It comes in a package. It's all sealed properly with police tape, etc. And I get my camera went up. The first thing I do, I get my camera out and I start photographing. Okay, here's the parcel I received. Here's me opening the parcel. Photograph that. I take the, the helmet out. I photograph all of that. I, you know, I keep that chain of evidence um, so that if I get confronted in a cross-examination in a court, then I said, yes, well, I didn't tamper with it. It's there. That's what's what was delivered to me. And likewise, in this Dubbo case, fascinatingly, we looked at the lights because he said his brakes had failed. And one of the things that um, puzzled one of the um, uh, police officers that were investigating the case was they found skid marks from the truck. And they wondered whether he applied his brakes prior to hitting the uh, vehicles. And if he had applied his brakes prior to hitting the vehicles, that means he was conscious, he was aware, he wasn't fatigued, he wasn't unconscious because of his coughing fit. So we we looked at that. And so we, we what we did is we pulled out the lights, the various globes from the truck. And what happens is uh, these globes, the filaments in the globes, if they are on, then the filament is heated. It's like a radiator. And what happens is during deceleration, they bend. And if they bend, that means that they were on at the time. Now, in this particular instance, the brake light 
was still intact, not bent, but the parking light was bent. And so what we established was the button brakes were not on. We also found that the hoses were severed, that the various uh, brake linings were, were broken, and that was due to the crash. And so the skid mark that occurred that was there, and we measured the skid marks from the points of impact, and, and so those skid marks were being created as the truck was impacting other vehicles. So it had, had its hoses severed and the, and the brakes automatically came on and locked, and that's why we established that that braking, that skid marks occurred when the vehicles were being impacted. If the filaments were bent, why didn't they straighten when they cool down? No, they don't. They're permanently bent. It's like, you know, heating up a piece of metal, bending it, and then cooling it down. It'll stay bent. Then why why aren't they bent the very first time they're used and they stay bent? No, no, they don't bend uh, under gravity. Gravity's not large enough to be able to bend those filaments. It's like your light bulb that we've got in the house, right? Um, well, the old ones, the old filament light bulbs, when you turn that on, the filament doesn't bend. It stays there, it's intact. And when you turn it off and you look at it, it hasn't bent. However, if you turn that on and then applied it, you put it in a sled, let's say, and you, you decelerated it, it would bend then you'd get it bent and you could establish, oh, that's been under um, some severe deceleration. So it's the impact that freezes it in that bent position? The deceleration, what we call deceleration. So, yes, the impact event. Uh, So what happens is when a vehicle either hits a solid object or hits another vehicle or whatever, or it's had its brakes jammed on in a pedestrian accident for example what happens is the vehicle is decelerating so it's it's decelerating at um, around about 0.6.7 g and so that's enough to bend the filament and so you'll then know if you take those lights out You'll know if someone's claiming, well, I had my brakes on, but you can't see any skid marks. Because now what's happened, we've got these um, ABS. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Well, you can tell. You've got to be there straight away on the scene, and you can see these little small jutters. But you've got to be there on the scene straight away. You can't have other vehicles driving over it and all that sort of stuff. But the lights themselves give you evidence. So if you've been decelerating, and with ABS you decelerate at a much higher rate, you know, up to about 0.8 G, and so it will bend the filament. And so um, that's one of the first things that the police do, the forensic police do, the crash investigators, they go on scene, they grab those lights and they document that. It's one of the standard procedures. The other thing also is um, seatbelts looking at the seatbelt. And so you can see whether someone was wearing a seatbelt or not. It's very easy to tell. You'll see the front windshield might be shattered or for the rear occupants, if they're not wearing the seatbelt, you won't see any evidence on the seatbelt of when the seatbelt locks in and it moves, it moves against the retractor in a way that it leaves marks. And also from medical from the medical um, uh, documentation, if you haven't got a bruise on you, you haven't been bruised, then you you probably weren't wearing your seatbelt. And people need to realise that if you make a claim for compensation, if you've got a claim to third-party insurance for an injury, you weren't wearing your seatbelt. They'll knock the, the payout down because you contributed to your own irresponsible act. 
We know pathologists are often called to crime scenes. We know coroners have been to crime scenes. With the crash investigators, are you on call or is there a roster? What sort of happens and what and how do they actually get to the site? Because if it's priority to get there as early as possible to preserve evidence, how are they ferried to the site? It depends on the severity. If you have multiple fatalities then you start getting helicopters involved if it's at a remote distance from a town centre. So in the case of the Dubbo crash, they all drove out. They drove to the site from Dubbo, and usually it's the local police from the nearest police station will drive to the site and uh, immediately secure the site and also reduce risk to other people coming into the site, so approaching the site, you know, other, other people travelling. And so they maintain the scene. The forensic uh, people, often it takes a couple of hours by the time they get there, um, if it's a remote site. In this instance, in the Dubbo crash, it took them a while to get there. It took them a few hours to get there. But you want to get there as soon as possible because the evidence deteriorates over time. I've been to sites where there have been crashes a couple of years later, and I still find the evidence there at the site. So quite often what the police will do, the investigators who come in, the crash investigators, or if someone's been trained from one of the local police that is there, they'll get a can of paint and they'll paint little marks on the road that indicate a gouge mark or a skid mark or you know there might have been some water somewhere or there might have been uh, some glass or something and they'll leave those marks on the road and you'll see them a year or two later still there and likewise shattered glass bits of the lights the the covers on the lights and that you'll see them in the grass nearby i've found oh, a whole heap of stuff at sites um and which indicates to me oh yes this is the crash site because oh, it, sometimes it's hard to locate the exact uh, place of the crash site when you go in a couple of years later but um, as a crash investigator, yes, you get there as quickly as you can. Often it's just by car. It's the team, they'll have their own vehicles all set up with all the gear on board. And one of the first things they do is start surveying. They'll start taking photographs and they'll set up the surveying. They've got to survey the site and indicate ex- exactly where the various bits and pieces are, the gouge marks, the skid marks. To be able to reconstruct the crash, you need to know where all the vehicles were where the bodies uh, were lying for example in this particular case the driver of the second vehicle struck um, was ejected from the vehicle the the back of the vehicle was just torn apart and and the driver was ejected out and lying on the ground so you've got to work out where you've got to identify those various key points in a survey these days it's very it's very interesting in that they've got modern techniques now they have drones these drones fly over the site and they're capable of now getting all the data points in the millions and then they transfer it to a program and then in the program you can you have the whole site reconstructed with data points and um, it's very sophisticated now so that you can get even down to the to, to fractions of a millimetre now, you can get where something was located. Because sometimes in the court proceedings that follow many years later, the barristers are arguing with each other. No, it wasn't lying there. It was over there. And that means this and this and this. And so they have these arguments to and fro. And so it's really important to document 
every last little bit, collect all of the forensic evidence and secure it. What do you have in your gear? Something to measure distances. So I'll, I'll just use a, um, a wheel that surveyors use to measure distances. I'll have my camera. My camera's essential. Uh, High-resolution camera. Um, I sometimes um, uh, video as I drive through the scene with, um, with a GoPro. So I've got the GoPros and I use those um, at the highest resolution I can. In this case, in the Dubbo case, truck crash case, we went out to where the vehicles were stored at the wrecking yard. So they're secured by the police. They're not allowed to be sold or anyone near them. And so we went out to look at all of the vehicles. And so I photographed the vehicles. We use the, uh, use the photograph. We use tape measures, etc. So as to distances, crush. Sometimes we'll take out, um, so to establish crush, there are various ways of determining the speed of an impact. And one way is to look at the crush of the vehicle. So we'll set up these um, sort of coloured red and white sort of marking sticks, which identify what the shape of the vehicle was prior to the crash. And then what we can do is we can measure the distance to the actual crumpled vehicle from those sticks of the original shape of the vehicle. And so that gives us a crush profile. And we can put that back into a program which uses various, um, well, previous uh, incidents, tens of thousands of incidents, and it works out what the force resistance is to cause that sort of crush. And from that, you can then work out what the speed was that the vehicle must have been travelling at in order to create that crush. We now have so many different cars on the roads, so many different vintages. Is there some sort of database that you can look at from older cars? We went through the stage where crumple was actually a safety feature and before anti-lock brakes, people who've learnt to drive on them probably don't realise that in the past people were taught to pump the brakes because otherwise they would lock and you would skid and have no control. So you give one of those old drivers an ABS car and they're trying to pump the brakes. In terms of drivers, do you find that drivers are negligent possibly in accidents because they're not knowing how to drive that car and the relative safety slash risks of that particular car? Uh, That's very hard to prove. The reason you're pumping the brakes is to release from the brakes rather than apply the brakes. So in the old days when we didn't have ABS, you would release the brakes so that the wheel would spin and this gain traction again so that you could steer it. Because if you kept it on all the time and it's skidding, it's like being on an ice rink, you know, on a vehicle and you, you have no control. So that's the reason for the pumping is to release it and allow the wheel to, to, to move because it has a higher friction. When it's skidding, the friction drops. And so it drops lower than what is the contact between the tyre and the road. So with the ABS, that's what it does. It controls the skid, so it allows the vehicle to move. It's dynamic friction as opposed to static. Static friction is when it's skidding. Dynamic friction is when it's moving, the wheel is moving but still gripping the road. And so you can get a much higher braking force. And what you're supposed to do with the ABS is keep your foot jammed on the brakes all the time uh, so as to lock in that ABS so that it works. 
for people that don't know what they're doing, well, you know, us baby boomers, I mean, we're experiencing now all this modern technology. Um, but look, the technology is important. Drivers make errors. There's no two ways about it. We all make errors. And so how to control those errors and don't let those errors be a death sentence. That's the real key here. And so what we need to do is have systems that are sophisticated enough to understand, okay, that driver's making that error. It's pumping the brakes instead of keeping the foot right down. And so you should have a system in there inbuilt so it should then apply the brakes for you and not rely on you applying the brakes. Now, my new um, vehicle um, that I've got, which is now only a few years old, it has automatic braking, and it's saved me a couple of times now. Um, I was up at Hall's Gap. I had a, lot, a bunch of passengers with me. I was in downtown, and what happened was someone darted out in front of me, and the vehicle was smart enough to apply its brakes, and it, all of us were wearing our seatbelts, of course. And the vehicle pulled up, and we didn't hit that pedestrian. Now, I wouldn't have had enough time to have applied my brakes to save that pedestrian from getting struck. And so our perception reaction time is about one and a half seconds. And it doesn't matter if you're Shoemaker or Senna or whoever, one of the um, you know Formula One drivers, or you're just normal you, each of us have roughly about a second to two seconds perception reaction time. We usually adopt about one and a half seconds. Now, that car is a lot faster. That smart car is a lot faster. and can work it out in fractions of a second. Hey, I'm about to hit somebody. Apply your brakes. You haven't applied your brakes? Here, bang, I'm applying the brakes. And it'll apply the brakes for you. There was a crash on the Monaro. Blake Corney was killed. And what happened was a truck hit the rear of that car and killed him. And so there was a coronial inquest in the ACT. And so we said, had that truck had this emergency braking system, he'd be alive today. And so this is really important that we have these systems so that even though you might have made a mistake and you're pumping your, you're pumping your brakes, the system takes over and it corrects your error. And that's what we want the system to do. And we want the road to do that. We want the cars to do that. Well, Raf, thank you so much. It's interesting that I've not always thought of car crashes and incidents involving forensic investigators, but it's actually a crucial, crucial component in our criminal system. So thank you very much for joining us today and sharing what is clearly a passion and vocation for you. You're most welcome. Thanks very much for having me here. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>